Chapters 33, 34, and 35 of John Barleycorn or Alcoholic Memoirs by Jack London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 33 I went to Australia to go into hospital and get tinkered up, after which I planned to go on with the voyage. And during the long weeks I lay in hospital, from the first day I never missed alcohol. I never thought about it. I knew I should have it again when I was on my feet. But when I regained my feet, I was not cured of my major afflictions. Naaman's silvery skin was still mine. The mysterious sun-sickness, which the experts of Australia could not fathom, still ripped and tore my tissues. Malaria still festered in me and put me on my back in shivering delirium at the most unexpected moments compelling me to cancel a double lecture tour which had been arranged. So I abandoned the snark voyage and sought a cooler climate. The day I came out of hospital I took up drinking again as a matter of course. I drank wine at meals. I drank cocktails before meals. I drank scotch highballs when anybody I chanced to be with was drinking them. I was so thoroughly the master of John Barleycorn, I could take up with him or let go of him whenever I pleased, just as I had done all my life. After a time, for cooler climate, I went down to southernmost Tasmania in 43 South, and I found myself in a place where there was nothing to drink. It didn't mean anything. I didn't drink. It was no hardship. I soaked in the cool air, rode horseback, and did my thousand words a day, save when the fever shock came in the morning. And for fear that the idea may still lurk in some minds that my preceding years of drinking were the cause of my disabilities, I here point out that my Japanese cabin boy, Nakata, still with me, was rotten with fever, as was Charmian, who, in addition, was in the slough of a tropical neurasthenia that required several years of temperate climates to cure, and that neither she nor Nakata drank or ever had drunk. When I returned to Hobart Town, where drink was obtainable, I drank as of old. The same when I arrived back in Australia. On the contrary, when I sailed from Australia on a tramp steamer commanded by an abstemious captain, I took no drink along and had no drink for the forty-three days' passage. Arrived in Ecuador, squarely under the equatorial sun, where the humans were dying of yellow fever, smallpox, and the plague, I promptly drank again. 
every drink of every sort that had a kick in it. I caught none of these diseases. Neither did Charmian nor Nakata, who did not drink. Enamored of the tropics, despite the damage done me, I stopped in various places, and was a long while getting back to the splendid, temperate climate of California. I did my thousand words a day, traveling or stopping over, suffered my last faint fever shock, saw my silvery skin vanish, and my sun-torn tissues healthily knit again, and drank as a broad-shouldered, chesty man may drink. Chapter 34 Back on the ranch, in the Valley of the Moon, I resumed my steady drinking. My program was no drink in the morning. First drink time came with the completion of my thousand words. Then, between that and the midday meal, were drinks numerous enough to develop a pleasant jingle. Again, in the hour preceding the evening meal, I developed another pleasant jingle. Nobody ever saw me drunk, for the simple reason that I never was drunk. But I did get a jingle twice each day, and the amount of alcohol I consumed every day, if loosed in the system of one unaccustomed to drink, would have put such a one on his back and out. It was the old proposition. The more I drank, the more I was compelled to drink in order to get an effect. The time came when cocktails were inadequate. I had neither the time in which to drink them, nor the space to accommodate them. Whiskey had a more powerful jolt. It gave quicker action with less quantity. Bourbon or rye or cunningly aged blends constituted the pre-midday drinking. In the afternoon, it was scotch and soda. My sleep, always excellent, now became not quite so excellent. I had been accustomed to read myself back asleep when I chanced to awake, but now this began to fail me. When I had read two or three of the small hours away and was as wide awake as ever, I found that a drink furnished the soporific effect. Sometimes two or three drinks were required. So short a period of sleep then intervened before early morning rising that my system did not have time to work off the alcohol. As a result, I awoke with mouth parched and dry, with a slight heaviness of head, and with a mild nervous palpitation in the stomach. In fact, I did not feel good. I was suffering from the morning sickness of the steady, heavy drinker. What I needed was a pick-me-up, a bracer. Trust John Barleycorn, once he has broken down a man's defenses. So it was a drink before breakfast to put me right for breakfast, the old poison of the snake that has bitten one. 
Another custom began at this time was that of the pitcher of water by the bedside to furnish relief to my scorched and sizzling membranes. I achieved a condition in which my body was never free from alcohol. Nor did I permit myself to be away from alcohol. If I traveled to out-of-the-way places, I declined to run the risk of finding them dry. I took a quart or several quarts along in my grip. In the past, I had been amazed by other men guilty of this practice. Now I did it myself unblushingly. And when I got out with the fellows, I cast all rules by the board. I drank when they drank, what they drank, and in the same way as they drank. I was carrying a beautiful alcoholic conflagration around with me. The thing fed on its own heat and flamed the fiercer. There was no time in all my waking time that I didn't want a drink. I began to anticipate the completion of my daily thousand words by taking a drink when only five hundred words were written. It was not long until I prefaced the beginning of the thousand words with a drink. The gravity of this I realized too well. I made new rules. Resolutely, I would refrain from drinking until my work was done. But a new and most diabolical complication arose. The work refused to be done without drinking. It just couldn't be done. I had to drink in order to do it. I was beginning to fight now. I had the craving at last, and it was mastering me. I would sit at my desk and dally with pad and pen, but words refused to flow. My brain could not think the proper thoughts, because continually it was obsessed with the one thought that across the room in the liquor cabinet stood John Barleycorn. When, in despair, I took my drink, at once my brain loosened up and began to roll off the thousand words. In my townhouse in Oakland, I finished the stock of liquor and willfully refused to purchase more. It was no use, because, unfortunately, there remained in the bottom of the liquor cabinet a case of beer. In vain I tried to write. Now beer is a poor substitute for strong waters. Besides, I didn't like beer. Yet all I could think of was that beer so singularly accessible in the bottom of the cabinet. Not until I had drunk a pint of it did the words begin to reel off, and the thousand were reeled off to the tune of numerous pints. The worst of it was that the beer caused me severe heartburn, but despite the discomfort 
I soon finished off the case. The liquor cabinet was now bare. I did not replenish it. By truly heroic perseverance, I finally forced myself to write the daily thousand words without the spur of John Barleycorn. But all the time I wrote, I was keenly aware of the craving for a drink. And as soon as the morning's work was done, I was out of the house and away downtown to get my first drink. Merciful goodness! If John Barleycorn could get such sway over me, a non-alcoholic, what must be the sufferings of the true alcoholic, battling against the organic demands of his chemistry, while those closest to him sympathize little, understand less, and despise and deride him. Chapter 35 But the freight has to be paid. John Barleycorn began to collect, and he collected not so much from the body as from the mind. The old long sickness which had been purely an intellectual sickness, recrudesced. The old ghosts, long laid, lifted their heads again. But they were different and more deadly ghosts. The old ghosts, intellectual in their inception, had been laid by a sane and normal logic. But now they were raised by the white logic of John Barleycorn, and John Barleycorn never lays the ghosts of his raising. For this sickness of pessimism caused by drink, one must drink further in quest of the anodyne that John Barleycorn promises, but never delivers. How to describe this white logic to those who have never experienced it. It is perhaps better first to state how impossible such a description is. Take Hashish land, for instance, the land of enormous extensions of time and space. In past years I have made two memorable journeys into that far land. My adventures there are seared in sharpest detail on my brain. Yet I have tried vainly, with endless words, to describe any tiny particular phase to persons who have not traveled there. I use all the hyperbole of metaphor, and tell what centuries to time and profounds of unthinkable agony and horror can obtain in each interval of all the intervals between the notes of a quick jig played quickly on the piano. I talk for an hour, elaborating that one phase of hashish land, and at the end I have told them nothing. And when I cannot tell them this one thing of all the vastness of terrible and wonderful things, I know I have failed to give them the slightest concept of hashish land. 
but let me talk with some other traveller in that weird region and at once am i understood a phrase a word conveys instantly to his mind what hours of words and phrases could not convey to the mind of the non-traveller so it is with john barleycorn's realm where the white logic reigns to those untravelled there the traveller's account must always seem unintelligible and fantastic at the best i may only beg of the untravelled ones to strive to take on faith the narrative i shall relate for there are fatal intuitions of truth that reside in alcohol philip sober vouches for philip drunk in this matter there seem to be various orders of truth in this world some sorts of truth are truer than others some sorts of truth are lies and these sorts are the very ones that have the greatest use value of life that desires to realize and live at once o untravelled reader you see how lunatic and blasphemous is the realm i am trying to describe to you in the language of john barleycorn's tribe it is not the language of your tribe all of whose members resolutely shun the roads that lead to death and tread only the roads that lead to life for there are roads and roads and of truth there are orders and orders but have patience at least through what seems no more than verbal yammerings you may perchance glimpse faint far vistas of other lands and tribes alcohol tells truth but its truth is not normal what is normal is healthful what is healthful tends towards life normal truth is a different order and a lesser order of truth take a dray horse through all the vicissitudes of its life from first to last somehow in unguessably dim ways it must believe that life is good that the drudgery in harness is good that death no matter how blind instinctively apprehended is a dread giant that life is beneficent and worth while that in the end with fading life it will not be knocked about and beaten and urged beyond its sprained and spavined best that old age even is decent dignified and valuable though old age means a ribby scarecrow in a hawker's cart stumbling a step to every blow stumbling dizzily on through merciless servitude and slow disintegration to the end the end the apportionment of its parts of its subtle flesh its pink and springy bone its juices and ferments and all the sensateness that informed it to the chicken farm the hide house the glue rendering works and the bone meal fertilizer factory 
to the last stumble of its stumbling end this dray horse must abide by the mandates of the lesser truth that is the truth of life and that makes life possible to persist this dray horse like all other horses like all other animals including man is life-blinded and sense-struck it will live no matter what the price the game of life is good though all of life may be hurt and though all lives lose the game in the end this is the order of truth that obtains not for the universe but for the live things in it if they for a little space will endure ere they pass this order of truth no matter how erroneous it may be is the sane and normal order of truth the rational order of truth that life must believe in order to live to man alone among the animals has been given the awful privilege of reason man with his brain can penetrate the intoxicating show of things and look upon the universe brazen with indifference toward him and his dreams he can do this but it is not well for him to do it to live and live abundantly to sting with life to be alive which is to be what he is it is good that man be life-blinded and sense-struck what is good is true and this is the order of truth lesser though it be that man must know and guide his actions by with unswerving certitude that it is absolute truth and that in the universe no other order of truth can obtain it is good that man should accept at face value the cheats of sense and snares of flesh and through the fogs of sentiency pursue the lures and lies of passion it is good that he shall see neither shadows nor futilities nor be appalled by his lusts and rapacities and man does this countless men have glimpsed that other and truer order of truth and recoiled from it countless men have passed through the long sickness and lived to tell of it and deliberately to forget it to the end of their days they lived they realized life for life is what they were they did right and now comes john barleycorn with the curse he lays upon the imaginative man who is lusty with life and desire to live john barleycorn sends his white logic the argent messenger of truth beyond truth the antithesis of life cruel and bleak as interstellar space pulseless and frozen as absolute zero dazzling with the frost of irrefragable logic 
and unforgettable fact. John Barleycorn will not let the dreamer dream, the liver live. He destroys birth and death, and dissipates to mist the paradox of being, until his victim cries out, as in the city of dreadful night, Our life's a cheat, our death a black abyss. And the feet of the victim of such dreadful intimacy take hold of the way of death. End of chapter 35